My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today I am joined by the man, the legend, a raw nationalist. Um, he is an author, um, an anonymous bodybuilding icon, and uh, in the words of Tucker Carlson, um, if the bro scientists have a spiritual leader, it would be the man who calls himself raw egg nationalist. Welcome. Thanks ever so much for having me, Alex. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, this has been an episode that I've been planning. I kind of wanted to to speak with you for a while. And then at one point you followed me and I was like, yes, excellent. Now we can <laughs> we can get things going. Um, you are, you know, as as my intro implied, somewhat of a... Um, an, uh, yeah, essentially an, an icon because you represent almost the physical being of you exudes this uh, this aura um, of of um, wisdom about nutrition, about fitness, <laughs> and about nationalism. So, um, tell me a, a little bit about slonking. I mean, this is kind of the, the this is what it's called the the consumption of raw eggs, and um, why is this such a symbolic gesture well i think it's i think it's it's symbolic on a number of levels it's it's an essential part of of uh raw egg nationalism because the egg represents in many ways the opposite of the kind of disgusting food that we're offered today uh by global corporations uh by you know, these 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 huge companies that uh, control ever increasing proportions of the food market in the U.S. and around the globe. The, the the egg is a local food. It's nutrient dense. It's highly nutritious. Uh, it's natural. You can get it right from the source. You can keep chickens in your own garden, or you can go to your local farm if you live in the countryside and pick up some some eggs. You know, it, it, there's no there's very little mediation between. Um, a consumer of eggs and and the eggs that they eat, ideally. Um, so, I mean, we sort of fixed on the fixed on the raw eggs. I think for that reason, but also because they are a they are an incredible superfood. They're a much maligned, much maligned food. In fact, I don't think that there are many more, many other foods that have been quite so maligned as eggs, because eggs contain significant quantities of cholesterol and uh, fat. Then they've been um, for 50, 50 plus years, really. Then we've been told not to eat eggs, when in fact, actually, what we should be doing is eating as many as possible. One of the things that I talk about or talked about recently in an article that I wrote for the American Mind, which was about just egg, which is this uh, vegan plant based egg alternative, which is just like something Satan himself, um, <laughs> you know, might have come up with. Um, in 1968, uh, when Lyndon B. Johnson was president, then he was in a similar position to Joe Biden today. He was uh, suffering a, a, a series of um, crises, uh, 
you know, the Vietnam War, inflation crisis. And he was told by one of his advisors that people were getting very, very ordinary people in the US were getting very, very annoyed about the fact that the price of eggs kept rising. And so what did Lyndon B. Johnson uh, do? Well, being Lyndon B. Johnson, he told the uh, Surgeon General to issue a warning about the cholesterol uh, about the cholesterol uh, content of eggs. And so that really began this, this sort of 50-year process of, of demonizing what is actually you know, one of nature's most perfect superfoods. Um, so yes, yeah, so I wrote about that. Not a lot of people know about that, but that is, actually, that is actually the primary reason why eggs in particular in the US have been singled out as something that people with heart conditions, people who have high cholesterol shouldn't eat. Uh, when in actual fact, in recent decades, then the science is is pointing completely the opposite direction now. That actually consumption of cholesterol is good for you. That con- consumption of cholesterol doesn't raise your blood cholesterol levels unless you've got some kind of quite uh, rare condition. So, really, what we're doing is we're we're pushing against the corporate regime that is trying to sell you, you know processed foods and foods that are as far away from the the kind of foods that our ancestors used to thrive on and then there's and then we've just embraced eggs because yes they are a superfood uh once upon a time they were integral to uh golden age bodybuilding diets vince duronda who is my avatar he was a golden age bodybuilding guru and he was a great champion of of eggs and the consumption of massive quantities of eggs rather than anabolic steroids so it's uh yeah, it's it's. I mean, that explains the 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 health aspects and the nationalism aspects, really, too. Yeah, so it's it's an uh, kind of an aesthetic movement and historically informed by kind of this bodybuilding culture. And I mean, it looks good as well. Like kind of that. What would it be like seventies era bodybuilding? There's quite a lot of uh, inspirational images from that period, and I can imagine that kind of flows into into. The personas that we see on uh, on uh, anonymous Twitter. Yeah, well, it's I'd say it's more it's like fifties to seventies, and maybe sixties is the kind of late sixties sort of uh, is probably the the real kind of flowering of the golden age. Um, uh, when you've got people like well Vince Gironda, but also people like Arnold Schwarzenegger just starting to emerge, just really before the physiques became grotesque. That's the thing, you know, the, the golden age bodybuilders um, still still wanted to achieve the sort of uh, timeless aesthetic principles that the Greeks had laid down. And in fact, that's actually something that Vince Gironda himself says in his book, uh, which is called The Wild Physique. He talks about the timeless principles of aesthetics that were established by the Greeks 2000 years ago and that inform his entire philosophy of bodybuilding. So he was he was very different from bodybuilders today who would who would be interested really only in putting on as much mass as possible if you look at if you compare a bodybuilder from the 1950s or 60s to a modern bodybuilder i mean it's you know it's um it's an it's an incredible incredible change that has taken place and really what they've done is they've abandoned any sort of um any kind of sense of proportion symmetry balance that kind of stuff's all gone out the window and it's just it's just mass for masses sake really yeah, they they tend to look like those uh, genetically modified um, I don't know cows that they have for beef. I think like Sh- Charolais or something, just like some some yeah genetic aberrations. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting because you know as 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 a woman, you know, looking at those you know pictures from 
the 60s and 70s, I can kind of understand the aesthetics. I mean, those guys were big. You know, if, if you'd probably poll all women, they'd probably prefer a smaller physique, even, even so. But the... Um, the guys that are now, I don't know, Mr. Olympia or something like that, they look like abominations from the pits of yeah. hell. Like there's just something wrong with that. And, you know, it's kind of like just vis- viscerally repulsive. Uh, it's, but, body, yeah. it's body dysmorphia, really. It is, it, there's, no, there's no doubt about it. It is a form of body dysmorphia. Yeah, male-to-male um, transgender. Or what was it? <laughs> yeah, that was very good. That was Darren Beatty, wasn't it? In yeah. um, his piece about uh, Black Rifle Coffee. Yeah, that was a very good thing. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Kind of going back to the the egg thing, like how deep the um, the the propaganda about it goes. Like even here in Romania, like I I tend to to feed my my you know I have a son who's like a year and a little bit uh, old, and I tend to feed him a lot of eggs and a lot of butter. Like I, I spoon feed him Kerrygold. I know a lot of people will judge me for this, but he loves it. Um, and uh, like I think like a few days ago, I just like. You know, in passing, told uh, um, a lady that helps me out, like watching him for a few hours while I work. Um, and I told her, oh, he's, he's had four eggs today. You know, he's been really, he's he's been eating. And she was like, oh my God, you know, you're giving your baby heart disease. <laughs> they don't get heart disease that early, number one. And two, he's fine. He loves it. Like, uh, it's 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 absolutely fine for that. Uh, but it's it's incredible. I mean, this this lady, you know, she's in her fifties. She's Romanian. She's not on you know any sort of connected to the internet. But it's um, she she's been fairly um, um, incepted with this information that you know you shouldn't be having salt. You shouldn't be having eggs. You shouldn't be having butter. You should have uh, sunflower oil. Everyone cooks in sunflower oil here. That's the main. Uh, thing. And if you ask someone like, what's the price of oil? It's specifically refined sunflower oil. That's what people cook in. That's what you fry in. That's what you put in soups and stuff. It's, it's quite, uh, quite sad. Um, so she's really concerned about me, but hmm. I'm, I'm fine. But it's, it's crazy how, you know, how deep the, the story goes. And, you know, even people who you'd think like are kind of more, more trad minded here. Um, they, uh, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a while since this information got out. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's, listen, we've been bombarded with this kind of information for decades and decades. I mean, it's, it's not only, it's not only that we've been, well, I mean, we, we, we've undergone a fundamental transformation in the way that we live and eat in the last hundred or so years. Uh, and this is something that I talk about in my new book, The Eggs Benedict Option, why we're eating this way. Well, it's, it's a complicated story. And uh, it does have to do with industrialization, with urbanization. Um, it's not, you can't simply say that it's uh, some kind of conspiracy or plan by big corporations to make us ill, you know, by, by feeding us substandard food. Although it does look like that to some extent. And it certainly is the case that, you know, corporations and the medical establishment are the chief beneficiaries of these significant changes that these transformations that have happened in the way that we live and eat and they continue to benefit from our ill health and uh encourage it really with with faulty science and with and with a a kind of medical focus that's on ad hoc treatment rather than addressing the underlying causes of of people's um uh illness whether mental or physical but um yes we've in in the last hundred years we really have moved fundamentally uh, away from 
the kind of foods that we should be eating, the kind of foods that our ancestors ate that sustained them and, and allowed them to flourish. One of the key books, I think, that anybody who wants to understand this process and its implications uh, is Western Price, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, which I, I talk about heavily in the Eggs Benedict Option because it's, it's an amazing, amazing book. So Weston Price was a dentist. He was Canadian, but he had his practice in Cleveland, Ohio. In the, I think he qualified as a dentist in something like 1890 or 1889. Anyway, he had this practice, dental practice in Cleveland at the turn of the 20th century, just as Americans were beginning to um, undergo this diet transformation. So a, a transformation from what we might call uh, ancestral type foods to uh, the products of industrial industrial food production, refined grains, um, different kinds of, of vegetable oils, that kind of thing, but, but especially refined grains and refined grain products. Um, so he noticed in his dental practice that more and more of his patients, but especially children, would turn up with um, worse and worse dental health so they would he was seeing more and more children with terrible cavities with malformed jaws uh narrow cheeks narrow nasal passages uh recessed jaws what you have to understand is that dentition uh the the the, the overall health of the face and the mouth is actually an index of broader health so you know if you if you are displaying these kinds of uh symptoms physical effects in your face and mouth, then actually your whole body is going to be unwell too. So, so Weston Price noticed these changes taking place and he started to form a hypothesis about what might be causing it. And being a sensible man, he thought it's probably what people are eating now. So he went on this globe-trotting trek, basically across every continent apart from Antarctica, uh, in search of traditional societies who were still eating their traditional foods uh, in order to try and find groups that displayed perfect health, so so dentition, he was looking at their faces, at their at their um, facial development and their teeth and jaws, but also overall their you know resistance to disease, their physical, their stature, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and he found he found I think fifteen or sixteen different groups, different um, tribes, traditional societies people like the Inuit, uh, the Maasai. He found some people in the Outer Hebrides in, in Scotland, some traditional crofters, you know, living on the islands who were eating, eating their traditional diets, people up in the high alpine areas of Switzerland, uh, you know, d dairy farmers, uh, people in the Torres Straits Islands off the coast of Australia, northern coast of Australia. And what he basically discovered was that all of these groups um, – despite the geographical differences, despite the cultural differences, we're all prioritizing one particular kind of food. And that was nutrient, what you might call nutrient-dense animal products. So these are things like especially organ meat, liver, especially uh, fatty cuts of meat. So not the lean cuts of meat that we might prize, like you know the, the tenderloin or fillet, uh, but the fattier cuts of meat. Uh, things like eggs, um, blood products, or just blood, plain and simple, uh, milk, milk and cheese. Um, uh, what else? 
uh, and fat products as well, things like uh, butter, lard, that kind of stuff. And um, seafood, seafood was the other thing. So, uh, you know, that was, those are the kinds of foods that people in their traditional settings will prioritize if they can. And if they can eat them, then they will display fantastic health. And those are precisely the kind of foods now that we're that we're moving further and further away from in our in our diets in the developed world and elsewhere. You know, there's no even in Western Price's time. Then he found among these traditional societies groups of people who were starting to eat Western style industrial industrial um, grain diets, and they were starting to display all the all the symptoms that he. Western Price noticed back in his uh, back at his practice in Ohio. So, yeah, we're moving away from a template of nutrition, template of of, of dietary health that was laid down. Well, probably at the uh, when humans first, uh, you know, when humans first became human, and there are you know there are studies. There was a recent Israeli study, for instance, that um, suggested that our more distant ancestors, so not uh, other forms of hominid, so not Homo sapiens, but other forms of hominid were super carnivores, which basically means that they ate nothing but meat. And the authors of this study reckon that maybe for two million years, our ancestors ate nothing but meat, basically. So I, I, I think that the, the value of, of a book like Western Price's Nutrition and Physical Degeneration is that it it basically lays out some iron rules, what I would call iron rules for nutrition. And um, it's, very, it's very hard to dispute his findings. And I think that we can lay so many of our, of our um, present ills at the feet of this dietary transformation that has taken place within the last hundred years. Yes, I, I I have to say, I just in terms of my experience with these diets, I have to say I agree. Um, I mean, I've, I've been probably my leanest and healthiest. And by that, I mean, just my waist circumference. I feel like that that's been the best kind of indicator of my overall health that I've ever had, um, has been lowest, uh, almost like to the sense that I've changed body types when I was doing keto, the ketogenic diet, but mostly mm. meat. And then I did carnivore for a few months and that was really excellent, but just, I was working in the city of London and I was working in sales and I had to go out with clients and, you know, there was steak juices seeping into my, you know, serviette to like, it was, it was a very <laughs> kind of logistically troubling situation. So I had to kind of had to quit it after a while. Uh, but yeah, that's, it's almost impossible to compare just the, the way that I felt. Um, I wasn't, it wasn't very for endurance sports. Cause I ran like a, a race at, at that point, it was really bad. It was a very hard race, but in maybe I wasn't adapted to that diet yet, but, uh, it was, uh, in terms of anything else from gut health to just sleep to how I felt during the day, it was just incomparable to any other existence, I would say. Well, I mean, one of the things that I say to people in general is just look, if you feel if you feel rotten, if you feel really awful, try changing your diet. Try a radical change because you can always go back. This is the thing, and this is it. It always surprises me actually that people don't people aren't more willing just to to try six weeks of a totally different diet because actually within six weeks, I can assure you, um, if you change your diet in the right way, you will feel like a different person. 
You know, I mean, if you're if you think you're sensitive to gluten, and a lot of people are, and uh, gluten sensitivity actually is you know is, is rising around the world for various reasons, not least of all because uh, wheat is is very heavily treated with chemicals, including glyphosate, which is an absolute nightmare. Um, but also because modern varieties of of wheat have been engineered so that they well, have been engineered with with the consequence that actually they produce a more indigestible form of gluten in greater quantity than um, uh, older varieties of wheat. So, you know, it, it, it's not a surprise that more and more people are actually becoming gluten intolerant or showing signs of gluten intolerance. Um, but, you know, just if you think you're gluten intolerant, stop eating bread, stop eating, stop eating, stop eating gluten and see how you feel. I, I, I would bet you would feel a lot better. I mean, I, get, I gave up bread and I've, I've never felt better. I, it was a, it was an amazing, amazing. Um, it was a revelation, really. Actually, when I gave up bread, just just the uh, the mental clarity and the lack of uh, any kind of sort of digestive problems, any kind of any kind of um, sort of bad feelings in my in my stomach, all of that was just gone. And that was just that was one food stuff. But yes, I I the the. Uh, yeah, my my advice is always to people: look, experiment on yourself. Experiment on yourself. There's no, there's no reason not to, and there's potentially a huge amount, huge amount to gain. Now, what what would be, let's say, maybe the the top three interventions that you think most people today would benefit from? Like top three experiments that one might try. Uh, mm. Okay. Well, yeah, I would say firstly, uh, give up gluten. Give up gluten. Uh, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of evidence actually for the really quite harmful effects of gluten, not only physically but also mentally. So there's a there's a paper that's become quite notorious because it's at the back of Mike Marr's book, uh, Harassment Architecture. It's called Bread and Other Edible Agents of Mental Disease, which is quite the title for a paper. But it's about it's about the evidence for uh, links between various sort of mental disorders, schizophrenia, all that kind of stuff, uh, and gluten consumption. And uh, it's uh, historical. There's all sorts of historical evidence. There's evidence from from uh, the great uh, famine of, I think, 1934 or 19, uh, 1943 or 1944 in Holland, uh, for instance, when there was a, a Bread shortage, massive bread shortage, and rates of mental illness decreased dramatically. All sorts of evidence like that um, to substantiate the links actually between quite serious mental illness and um, uh, gluten consumption. So, I, yes, I would say intervention one: eliminate gluten, uh, and also, uh, but, 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 but be aware that gluten is used in a lot of a lot of products. You'll find gluten in in places you would never expect to find it. And it can actually trigger, and it can actually trigger, um, it can actually trigger reactions. Even if the gluten is present in something like shampoo, gluten is used in cosmetics as a thickener, uh, and it can it can trigger reactions. So so be careful. Try to try to read the labels. Try to find out what um, what's in the products you're eating, and uh, so pay attention. Uh, number two, I would say. Uh, it's cutting out vegetable and seed oils, and this is a this has been a big thing on Twitter, on uh, right wing Twitter, and uh, it's spreading over now into the 
sort of normie consciousness into the mainstream, I think. But vegetable and seed oils are are bad, are very bad, although they are promoted as being healthy fats. In fact, uh, quite the opposite is true. And there's a very long history for very long history behind why animal fats came to be demonized and vegetable and seed oils came to be uh, came to be um, uh, h- held up as healthy alternatives that is very, very interesting, but I, I won't go into to, too much detail here. But anyway, vegetable and seed oils are in everything. They are a mainstay of all processed food. So if I say to you, cut out vegetable and seed oils, what I also mean is cut out all forms of processed food because processed food is, is, is very bad indeed. Uh, it also contains you know, lots of sugar, colorings, additives, sweeteners, all sorts of all sorts of disgusting stuff. What you really want to be doing is you want to be preparing your own food as much as possible and preparing it from whole food sources. Uh, the third intervention, actually, uh, I, I, I wouldn't call this, a, well, this is a dietary intervention, but it's more of a technical intervention. Learn how to cook. That's, that's absolutely key as far as I'm concerned. Learn how to cook. It's not that hard. Learn how to Learn how to use a saucepan, uh, a frying pan. Learn how to control the heat in the frying pan. Get some good cookware. Uh, I use copper cookware, and because copper is such a good, such a good conductor of heat, it's actually quite possible to cook a steak in butter without burning the butter. Um, but it will be that will be that will be another transformative thing. I think if you can learn how to cook, you can. Uh, you're you're much more in control of what goes in your body because you don't you don't need to rely on other people's cooking uh, in order to uh, to get your nutrition. Yeah, that's that's a a really good um, note because I've um, I do have copper cookware as well, but I have to admit I keep it on the wall as decoration at the moment, so it's not uh, it's not being used. I use. Non-stick pans. I don't exactly know what they're coated with, but I'm sure it's some some ghastly abomination. Should I take these things off the wall and learn how to cook with them? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the non-stick coatings aren't uh, aren't particularly nice. I mean, it, I don't think it's such a problem when the saucepan is new, but once it starts to get scuffed, you'll get microscopic bits of the of the coating in the food. So yeah, I would I would counsel you to use those those very attractive copper. Copper saucepans. Uh, I mean, I was lucky enough to inherit some, to inherit a bit a big load of old sort of French copper cookware, and it's just w- one of the things. One of the best things about copper cookware is just that it is um, it it conducts heat so well. It it spreads, it disperses the heat very very nicely over the surface of the pan. That's why, for instance, um, copper cookware is very good for making custard for boiling milk because you don't get hot spots. Where the where the milk will start to curdle, which is something that you get with other forms of cookware. So yes, I would yeah I would say to, yeah, bin okay. the bin the um, bin the nonstick stuff. Yeah, I will. It was it was kind of one of those things that just felt so practical that I didn't even want to um, you know research it too much, <laughs> lest I get too <laughs> scared of my saucepans. But yeah, I, I I should I should. That's you know it's been on the back burner, but I'll. I'll prioritize it. <laughs> so that's 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 really useful. Um, with the eggs, um, is there a very very specific reason why they should uh, be consumed raw? Do they lose a lot of their potency or nutritional value if you cook them? I eat lots of eggs, but they're all cooked. 
Well, I mean, first of all, the, the thing that I would say is that I would never discourage anybody from eating cooked eggs. If they don't want to eat raw eggs, fine, eat, eat cooked eggs. I mean, I would say eat a soft-boiled egg rather than a... Don't nuke it. Don't, um, you know, don't hard-boil it. Make a nice omelette, scrambled eggs, uh, soft-boiled eggs. That's great. That's great. Absolutely great. You will still get the best quality nutrition. The thing about... Uh, the raw eggs is that yes, you do lose you do lose some uh, some nutrition, some micronutrients, enzymes, things like that. Uh, uh, B vitamins are damaged uh, a little bit when you cook, and also the cholesterol. I think um, is also slightly altered, might be oxidized. Um, but but overall, the, the main reason for consuming them raw is is quantity. So if you've seen Cool Hand Luke. The Paul Newman film, you'll know that eating 50 boiled eggs is a very, very difficult thing to do. But actually, you could eat 50, you could eat 50 raw eggs in 30 seconds. You could slonk 50 raw eggs in 30 seconds. And you probably wouldn't even feel full, actually. That's the other thing. That's one thing that um, it, you know, so many people say to me when they, when they start slonking is actually, oh, I, I just knocked back 12 eggs and it feels like, you know, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't feel like 12 boiled eggs would. You know, it feels great. It doesn't feel heavy on my stomach. Doesn't feel, doesn't feel um, uh, sort of problematic in any way at all. Um, so yeah, so it's. Uh, I mean, there's there's science behind it. So there's one of the one of the things that is that, that Vince Gironda, the golden age uh, bodybuilding guru, intuited or understood was that actually. It's the cholesterol in eggs that is anabolic. Not, I mean, there's protein. There's fantastic protein, the highest quality protein in eggs. Uh, eggs get a score of 100 on the um, protein digestibility corrected uh, amino acid score. Uh, they are a perfect protein. But um, no, it's the cholesterol. It's the cholesterol that is anabolic. And there have been studies recently, quite a few studies actually, that have substantiated what Gironda intuited that there is a closer, the more cholesterol you eat, basically the more muscle you put on. And this has been demonstrated in a number of studies. And the effect is greater than for protein. So people tend to think, oh, you eat more protein, you put on you know, more muscle. And that is true. But actually, there's a stronger correlation between cholesterol consumption and muscle gain than there is between protein consumption and muscle gain. So it's about consuming huge quantities of, of cholesterol, really. That's what it is primarily. Um, and is there like for for me because I am little baby with this? <laughs> I'm just I'm imagining slonking twelve eggs, <laughs> my skin's crawling. There's some way you know for the non-initiate to sweeten the deal. Can I make like a custard or something out of it, or some some in- intermediate form before I go all out on the slonking? Ab- absolutely. So there is a you don't have to slonk eggs as they come. You really don't have to do that. So there is a although a lot of people do so there is a there is a variation of the of slonking where you you slonk what i call the the og shake the original gironda shake so uh this would be raw eggs a mixture of milk and heavy cream in equal proportion so vince gironda called that half and half so you know 250 milliliters or 100 milliliters of of milk 100 milliliters of cream uh, and then you add maybe some honey or some maple syrup to taste. And that is basically custard. I call that anabolic custard. Um, uh, and you can, you can 
uh, whisk it up with a spoon if you want or leave the, the yolks whole. But that, I mean, you will have absolutely no problem knocking that back. It's more, it's more calorific, of course, because you've got milk and milk and eggs. And ideally, the milk should be raw milk. But if you can't get raw milk, just get the best quality milk you can get. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is absolutely nobody could find that disgusting. Absolutely. And then you just blend, blend that up. And this would be like a, a meal replacement, I guess. Yeah. For, yep. Yeah. You could have it. You could have it for breakfast. You could have it as a meal replacement. You could have it before or after you work out. Uh, instead of a protein shake. I mean, it's so much nicer than a protein shake. And the thing about all of these um, commercial protein shakes is that they're loaded with they're loaded with sweeteners and things like um, aspartame. And and you know that sweeteners are sweeteners are bad news, especially something like aspartame. Um, they they actually more and more studies are showing that they have all the negative effects of sugar consumption and others as well. So. Um, you know, they're, 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 no, it's not good at all. So yeah, stick stick with the raw eggs. Add some milk and cream, maybe some honey. You can add a banana if you want as well. Um, you can also make raw egg ice cream. That's the other thing, and that's uh, in my cookbook. Then I I have a recipe for absolutely delicious no churn raw egg ice cream. And you know, you can you can you can put on muscle eating ice cream basically. That sounds. Exactly. Like <laughs> what I love to do. Um, in terms of putting on muscle, you wouldn't just be sitting there and putting on muscle. Is there a kind of a protocol of training that goes with raw nationalism? What what would be kind of the, the, the core message there? Y- yes. I mean I've I've always advocated uh sort of golden golden age bodybuilding principles, golden era style workouts. So um I mean, I, so, I mean, my background, I was a martial artist, so I was, I was always very, very, I was very, very lean. Um, uh, I used to do a lot of calisthenics, kettlebell stuff. I, I was kind of, a, I was kind of sold on the notion of functional fitness, which I'm not at all sold on now. Uh, I think it's a silly idea, but, um, yeah, so I, I have, I moved over to a, to a, a strength, a strength based routine, when I started, or actually just before I started the Roeg nationalism stuff, and then the Roeg, the Roegs kind of took it into overdrive. But um, yeah, I I would say that you should, if you're a beginner and you want to put on mass, then what what you really want to do is you want to get strong. So ideally, you should focus on the bench press, uh, deadlift, and squat, overhead press, and then add in some uh, supplementary exercises. Um, for the smaller body parts, maybe some some bicep curls, some tricep work, uh, chin ups, stuff like that, bent over rows. But you can actually you can actually make a huge amount of progress with a very very simple kind of meat and potatoes routine. And a lot of the golden era bodybuilders, you have to remember, had very little access to equipment because a lot of it hadn't even been invented. So, you know, the shiny. Uh, bells and whistles, uh, kind of machinery that you see in a Planet Fitness didn't exist in the 1960s, 1950s. Not even really until the 1980s. So you know you could you can build an an amazing physique with basic, uh, basic compound exercises. That's that's what you should fun- focus on, and that's what a lot of the what of the a lot of the Golden Age bodybuilders did, and that's what I've done. And this would be um, necessarily lifting heavy things, putting them down to failure, or just uh, kind of. Yes, yeah. I mean, I mean, 
whether or not you go you go to failure or not is a, is a kind of moot point. But you, what you want to be doing is you want to be building strength over time. So you're going for progressive overload, um, probably in lower rep ranges. So there's a there's a very famous um, style of training called five by five, where you do five sets of five reps, bench press, squat, deadlift, and then you add two and a half pounds the next time you do the lift do five sets of five, two and a half pounds and so on. And you just work up like that. Um, yeah, that's, that's the kind of thing that, that, that you want to be doing. You, you do have to, I mean, a lot of people who go into the gym, pick up weights and sort of half-heartedly, you know, do 10 repetitions or whatever, put the weights down and then do that a couple more times and then, you know, kind of leave and then wonder why they don't make any progress. You do need to be, you do need to be pushing yourself. I mean, the thing is, when you're a begin, when you're a beginner, though, especially if you're coming in from uh, from being somebody who has very little experience of exercise, somebody who you know, doesn't do very much at all, then the mere stimulus of being there will be enough, and for a while that will carry you. But at a certain point, then you do have to get quite serious about it. And one of the things I would recommend is to keep a journal, so just have a have a little book and write down everything you did in your exercise, everything you did in your uh, workout as you're doing it so that you can keep track of your progress over time because that that is the way in the long term that you will make gains is to ensure that you are adding weight to the bar over time and getting stronger. And and you said that you um, weren't that um, keen on, on functional fitness anymore. I mean, what what is wrong with that approach? Well, I think I think that people... It's, it's obviously true that some exercises translate into real-world capability more than others. But people, people get it. People have got this idea for some reason, I don't know why, that barbell exercises in particular, because, you know, like in, in the real world, you don't do a bench. I mean, when, when would you do a bench press movement necessarily? Or when would you, when would you do a pure squat movement? So with a barbell on your back. So they, they get this idea perhaps that doing those exercises, all you're doing is you're building muscle for show. And, you know, you hear people say, oh, so-and-so is muscle bound. So-and-so is, so-and-so's muscles are for show or whatever. And that can, I mean, maybe that is true to an extent. You can be too muscular. You only need to really to look at the kind of Mr. Olympia competitors who can barely sort of waddle through the aisles of the supermarket when they're, when they're off the stage or out of the gym. But, um, the functional fitness meme sort of leads people down these really ridiculous avenues where they think that what you have to be doing is you have to be doing squats on top of a bozu ball, a balance on top of a bench, on top of a broomstick or something, you know, and it's all, it's just, it's just ridiculous. You don't, with, with, with exercises like that, among other things, what you can't do is you can't really progress. It's very, very difficult to progress with movements like that. Whereas with a barbell, then, you know, you really can progress. You can add more weight to the barbell each week or month or whenever and, and progress. But when you do these sort of silly functional fitness exercises, um, you can't progress. And in any case, I just think that, you know, you would be far better off focusing on, on doing on adding weight to your squat, for instance, if you want to be explosive, if you want to be a powerful, a powerful running back in in football or whatever, um, you'd be far better off just adding weight to your squat than trying to do you know a hundred silly sort of different exercises that 
apparently capture some aspect of real world movement that that squatting with a barbell doesn't. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's not which isn't to say that I don't think that there is any value in doing things like body weight exercises or kettlebell exercises because there obviously is, and especially as we've seen over the last two years with the lockdowns and things, then actually, you know, you can end up in a situation where you have no access to equipment whatsoever. And that can happen very, very quickly. And it's much better to do something rather than nothing. And okay, you, you might want to bench press, but actually you might have to build a you might have to build a workout, a chest workout out of doing press ups, you know, and, and changing your hand or foot position to alter the leverage to make it harder or easier or whatever. Um so yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't discourage people from from um doing that kind of thing if they have to because you know any any exercise is is better than none certainly so in the end the uh conclusion it seems that it's just about building strength and strength will translate into whatever it is you want to do with it afterwards yes yeah i mean uh, i mean uh, building building strength won't necessarily make you a better long distance runner although it although it might actually i think you would be surprised actually that the the kind of um crossover benefits that 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 uh, a long distance runner might experience for instance from building up their squat strength and certainly if you're a sprinter then you can develop explosive strength in the gym you know with a barbell uh but yes i mean it's i mean the the thing with the the right wing bodybuilder movement is that it is uh, it's an aesthetic thing too as well it's uh it's uh, it's a middle finger to the establishment which wants you to be fat sick depressed and unmotivated it's 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 the most visible way that you can show the regime that actually you're not on board with that you know you 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 believe that actually the the human body is a beautiful beautiful machine that has been created you know uh to do things to do amazing things and yeah so that so that's what ultimately we're we're trying to we're trying to do it's not it's not just about it's it's about building muscles for show yes muscles that look good but also muscles that can do things too yes i think um that was very well uh captured by the the recent tucker carlson documentary of which you were uh the star i think it was, <laughs> it was called the end of men wasn't it yes um and uh yeah t- tell me a little bit about that uh the the process of of uh you know being in that documentary of of you know recording it uh i know ben braddock was also in the documentary mm-hmm. um so yeah it's uh it's an interesting uh, milestone i think for the for the movement yeah it's it's mad i mean i still i still have to pinch myself from time to time to uh remind myself that this is all real and not some not some very strange silly dream it's uh it's hilarious i i find myself laughing as well quite a lot now when i think about it think about going on the Tucker Carlson show to talk about it as well but yeah it was a it was a it was a it was a surreal thing to be to be contacted and asked to be a part of it to think that um you know Tucker obviously pays attention to what we're doing Tucker obviously has eyes and ears in our world and is and is taking well taking very serious notice i mean it's not despite what the uh the blue checks and the and the commentators would have you believe it's not a 
it's not a joke, you know. And I th- and I think that Tucker Carlson is is very very seriously behind the message of the documentary. I think he believes it as as we obviously do. Um, but yeah, the process was yeah was very 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 strange. I I when I was told what we were going to be doing, you know, that we'd be <laughs> shooting bottles of vegetable oil and all that kind of stuff, and and uh, yeah, it was just crazy. But I mean, I recorded I recorded two and a half hours of interviews for that. I mean, I, I thought it would be like, you know, you hear these stories about people who've recorded three hours of or a day's worth of, of scenes for a film or something, and then it works out being at 30 seconds. And so I thought, oh, he'll probably, you know, it'll just be a little clip of me, maybe a sound bite or something. But then it turned out to be 15 minutes of me espousing the whole, uh, the whole raw egg nationalist and right-wing bodybuilder philosophy, which was, yeah, in- incredible, incredible, really. But but yeah. it's very timely, I think, very timely, and and it's not, it's not um, these issues aren't issues that traditionally get mainstream coverage. You know, I mean, uh, the 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 extent to which people are being poisoned by these harmful chemicals is should should be a matter a matter of national and global interest for ordinary people, and yet it's. Um, Something that most people most people wouldn't have a clue what a xenestrogen is if you if you asked them they wouldn't know what BPA is or what phthalates do and they wouldn't you know be able to tell you a thing about it. So he's he's done a real service, I think, Tucker. He really has, and 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 also put his neck on the line because, of course, uh, you know, critics have have wanted to to label it fascistic and all that kind of stuff because it's a regimented fitness and you know cult of the body and all that kind of stuff but uh i mean there's obviously no substance to that but uh you know he 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 could have could have taken an easier path he certainly didn't have to um uh you know get on board with us and 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 get us to talk and give us a platform but he did and i'm very glad that he did yeah it was a a really good documentary uh i think if, i don't think you can get it everywhere i think it's streaming in the us but there is I'll try to find the link where it was uploaded for my European audience. It's on, few... it's on Rumble and BitChute on now. On Rumble. Oh, okay, good. That's great. Uh, I'll add the, the the link in the show notes. But yeah, it was a, it was a really um, startling to... I'm sure there, there are more kind of anons in there that you know people are familiar with but uh, are not necessarily you know uh, declaring that they've been in the documentary. Um, but I think one of the other messages in the documentary was the um, kind of the t- testosterone collapse, which is, you know, one of the big messages in the background. Um, is that something that you feel you could diagnose just from lifestyle factors and these, you know, environmental factors? Or is there something more to that? Uh, I mean, I, I think it is just fundamentally, yes, it is. It's lifestyle and diet. I mean, one of the things that you have to realize about being overweight as a man is that being overweight is one of the primary causes of hypergonadism. So hypergonadism is low testosterone. Uh, so it's it's mostly overweight men who are diagnosed with hypergonadism. So being overweight is is terrible, terrible for your um, testosterone. But then, yes, it's it's diet, lifestyle, and expo- and uh, yes, exposure to these. Uh, Exposure to these um, horrible estrogenic chemicals that are everywhere. I do, yeah, I do think I do think that 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 is probably about it. I think 
that's that's certainly more than enough to be getting on with. Um, you know, if if people if we could address all of those factors, then I can guarantee you that men and women would be so much healthier, so much healthier. And is there um, a place for women in the ROIG nationalist movement? Um, yeah, because I know you're the editor of the Man's World magazine. <laughs> Um, is there, um, I don't know, are, are there women, I mean, I know the main, you know, right-wing bodybuilders are, uh, male, especially the anonymous ones, uh, for sure. Mm. Um, at least as far as we know. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I, I don't, maybe I'm not familiar, but is, is there kind of a subgroup of female things, uh, that are being discussed there? I should know, but I don't, to be honest. Of, of female issues, do you mean? Female? Issues, yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, I mean, yes, I mean... And this is actually something that's covered in the Tucker documentary. There is he interviews Tiger Lily, and oh, yeah. uh, talks about um, talks about the kind of uh, dreadful toll that these chemicals and 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 foods and and, and lifestyle changes are, are taking on women too. And so, yes, I mean, absolutely. If we if we cleared up if we cleared up the environment of all of these estrogenic chemicals, uh, if we reduced exposure across the board, and if we got everybody to stop eating vegetable and seed oils and so much sugar and to do some exercise and go back to eating nutrient dense animal foods then then yeah i mean a, a lot of a lot of problems that women have would disappear too i mean you these estrogenic these estrogenic chemicals are responsible for all sorts of things they're responsible i think for the rise in uh, conditions like endometriosis, polycystic ovary syndrome, all that kind of stuff, um, and then you could look at, for instance, the um, uh, contraceptive pill, you know, estrogenic, um, estrogenic birth control, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's wreaking havoc with women's health. And there's there's actually a very good book if if you're interested in the female aspect of this it's called i'm looking at it it's on my shelf right now uh the greatest experiment ever performed on women by barbara seaman and it's about it's about the discovery of estrogen and uh then it's marketing to women as a kind of um as a miracle hormone basically that's how estrogen has been treated or how it was certainly hailed in the beginning as a miracle hormone and actually it's had all sorts of terrible effects i mean you know, estrogen is um there are lots of estrogen dependent forms of cancer especially breast cancer uterine cancer um and the argument is that actually you know the the, the mass prescription of estrogen to women has resulted in deaths it's not only compromised the quality of life of 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 so many tens of thousands or hundreds or millions of, of women but it's also actually led to deaths it's you know it's it's killed women from cancer um so yes, I I think that there is all of this. All of this is tied up together. This isn't just a movement for the health of men, although that is, you know, I suppose the emphasis that it gets with the with the men. It, it's it's a movement for for human health and flourishing more broadly. And um, I think it was good that Tucker brought that out actually, because that could have been uh, that could have been a sort of critical flaw. I think of the documentary, or, or that would have been something that people would have picked up on. You know, oh, it's it's just this is just about men. This is just scaremongering about men. But actually, you know, it's 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 for women's benefit too. It's for, it's for everybody's benefit. And uh, 
Yeah. Yes, I uh, I do know Tiger Lily, and I do want to recommend. She's had millions of incarnations as well. She keeps she keeps getting kicked off of Twitter and all sorts of platforms uh, because she's so very outspoken. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about the bodybuilding aspect. I think that's a bit less represented in 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 women, but yeah, there's definitely a a bigger kind of crunchy mom holistic mm. sphere that's adjacent to to right wing bodybuilding, of which I am yeah definitely part of. Um, there's, um, I think there's a good segue from this is just, uh, kind of the, the medical community and the, the, the hidden cost of, of medical dysfunction of mm. bad prescriptions, kind of this, this iatrogenic, uh, cost that people just don't, don't realize, you know, cause, cause doctors in, in many ways, deservedly for some directions, um, have this mantle of, um, of, you know, experts, scientists, they're doing, um, you know, uh, evidence-based procedures. But at the same time, you know, you were, you were talking about um, hormones, female hormones. I mean, I was put on progesterone at 13 on the basis of a conversation. Yeah. Um, it's it, the consequences of that have been, you know, dire in many ways for me. And I wasn't the only person, but it's, it's just the fact that um, having that power uh, it's. I feel like there's very little accountability for for what's been done to to people with these these you know novel substances, which might be beneficial for some, but are definitely not like a panacea. You can't just be finding something like this and saying, okay, you know, everyone gets to have this. Well, look, I mean, look at what's happened over the last two years. Um, I mean, if anybody anybody needed convincing that there are serious, there are fundamental flaws with the way that medicine works in the modern world well look at what's happened over the last two years look at all of the look at the way that that people's legitimate fears about a, a novel form of therapy were totally well we're not only we're not only dismissed those people were gaslit and uh treated as extremists not only by the not only by the media and not only by sort of uh, commentators people on twitter but the government and and the medical industry and uh no. they've made a lot of money they've made a lot of money but they've also caused a huge amount of harm but yes iatrogenesis is a, is a very very interesting subject i mean i did a i did a thread actually about iatrogenesis today because i was reading a paper about it you know um iatrogenesis this is the theory that um actually medical treatment the whole sort of medical profession actually causes harm and may even cause more harm than good on balance um, I think it's iatrogenesis is the fifth leading cause of death in the world. That's one estimate. Um, and I did a whole thread about uh, based on a paper that was just the paper was just listing some of the some of the statistics that have been gathered about uh, things like um, uh, reactions to drugs, adverse drug reactions, things like that. You know, it's something like. 10% of, of patients have adverse drug reactions. 700,000 people in the US die a year from adverse drug reactions, from being prescribed the wrong drugs. 70% of all sentinel events, so sentinel events are serious, uh, are events in a healthcare setting that lead to serious harm or death. 70% of those are caused by miscommunication between medical professionals. Miscommunication. 
no. something like t- telling a telling a nurse to telling a nurse to give someone an injection in their spine rather than in a vein or something or you know that kind of thing i mean it's yeah it's a, it's a serious it's a serious problem and it's difficult to know as you say how to hold these people to account and the the sad thing about what's happened over the last 2 years is that i don't really see a way how we're going to hold these people to account i mean you saw that you saw that piece about the pandemic amnesty or we need a pandemic amnesty i mean it's it's easy to say that when you know most of the fault is on your side when you are one of the people who has who has been in the position of of wronging others rather than being wronged you know it's i mean traditionally didn't we beg for forgiveness when we'd done something wrong i mean isn't that the way that you that you traditionally gain forgiveness is you beg for it and it's dependent on the the good character of the person being begged the the magnanimity of the of the person being begged but actually we're being told look you have to forget everything that happened over the last two years. You have to forget the gaslighting. You have to forget that you weren't allowed to see your grandmother when she was dying in the nursing home. You, know, you weren't allowed to. You weren't allowed to go and hold your wife's hand when she was in labour. Although I'm sure that some some women probably don't don't want their husbands or boyfriends uh, in the room with them when they're in labour. But you know that kind of thing. I mean. Ordinary people have suffered so much over the last two years, and they're and you know so much is coming out now. So much is coming out. You know they've they've had to walk back all of their claims about the efficacy of the vaccines. They've had to walk back, um, uh, and and they've had to admit things that a year ago or six months ago or a year and a half ago were denied as conspiracy theories. They've actually had to admit them, you know, and, and people were banned from Twitter for saying things and banned from social media for saying things that now actually medical authorities and the government are admitting are true. Well, I've been, I got a strike on my, uh, on my YouTube account for a conversation I had, you know, months ago, half a year ago with, with Ben Braddock, actually, mm. when we were talking about COVID, things that now are common knowledge and are admitted. I still, I got that strike two weeks ago. So it's, uh, it's still, these are things are still being enforced at yeah. the same level. Uh, they're still going after their enemies for uh wrong thing that, you know, it's, it's like, um, what's that called? A, c- a celebration parallax type situation where, um, you know, we're, we're still being punished for common truths that only they can say, um, and also let's all get, get along. Yeah. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. And I don't, I don't see how, I mean, we need to, we need to do something. These people do need to be held accountable. At the very least, we need to, we need to find a way to make it so that something like this can't happen again. But the question is how we would do that. I mean, I think obviously there's a political route to that, and we need to we need to elect people who say that that's precisely what they want to do, that they want to make sure that that stuff like this can't happen again, that the, the medical profession can't can't behave this way, that government can't behave this way, and also that social media companies can't behave this way. I mean, you're always going to get ordinary people behaving badly, but but they you know people have been enabled enabled by or disabled by social media companies um hand in hand in glove with with corporations and the medical establishment so i mean it's a yeah it's it's a it's a complicated business but but we can't just sweep it under the rug but that is precisely what they want to do of course is to sweep it under the rug um yeah. but then it will and happen it, again yeah 
it seems to me like we're we've moved into a very different phase of history where it's very hard to hold people to account because things are moving so fast. Like the, the narrative is so all encompassing and it's pushing forward at, at lightning speed. Like, you know, just things like lab leak, you know, yeah, um, just the implications of that. And the fact that it's plausible, but no one cares anymore. We're on to the next thing. You know, even Ukraine is, uh, is, is old hat. Um, all of these things are just, it's just one churning big, um, I don't know, just like a, I don't know, like a shredder that we're all being pushed into. Mm. And even, you know, let the chips fall where they may, you know, I've had family members die because of the circumstance of the last years. And, Mm. you know, not only do I have no recourse, um, no one cares. Like, I don't even have anyone to talk to about it. It's like, yeah, whatever. Um, What's, what's new in Ukraine? What's, what's, what's the next thing? It's, um, it's, it's very disconcerting. Well, one of the one of the things actually that really depressed me last year, or really really shocked me, was um, so the the Euro twenty twenty football tournament was postponed for a year because of the coronavirus. So you know, so that's a that's a for people who don't know, then that's a that's a football or soccer uh, competition between the European nations. Basically, it's a tournament, and um, it should have taken place in twenty twenty, but it was pushed push back to 2021 and uh it was like people just when it actually happened you know and england did quite well we got to the final although we lost in the final on penalties um it was just like i mean it was very definitely a release valve i would say i think that all the 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 huge amount of tension that had built up in the country because of the social the social restrictions were just you know it, it was all let off and because we did well then and, and it was like you know oh well, actually the last 18 months haven't happened and people were just pretending like everything was back to normal and it was just it was just it was just so surreal i was just like oh, you know people are so people are so happy about all of this and they're so they're so pleased that they've just forgotten they've just forgotten what's happened to them for the last year and a half um it really was a really was a kind of uh Bread and circuses, I suppose, but um, yeah, it's, I, I feel like the, the the level of bread and circuses is so um, advanced, so high now that I really wonder what the uh, the the compromise in lifestyle or what the personal tragedy um, would would have to occur in, in in each of these people's lives for them to 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 get shaken up a little bit. Like how yeah. much immiseration can you stand before you? ask questions yeah i mean it's like i mean in in britain at one point in the early stages of the of the pandemic in the first year of the pandemic then it was made illegal was actually made illegal to have sex with someone who wasn't your partner or spouse who was living with you it's like i mean (laughs) very trad (laughs) yeah yeah we yeah we we very briefly became a an islamic um an islamic republic but um you know, it was just like, imagine if you told somebody that that was going, 10 years ago, that that was going to happen in 2020, that the government was going to tell ordinary citizens who they could and couldn't, um, you know, have a, have a romantic relationship with. It's like, it's crazy, but I, I don't know what, what, what you would have to do. You lock people in their houses and tell them that they can't do anything. I mean, what, what's worse than that, really? 
But I mean, the depressing thing actually was seeing, I encountered quite a few young people who were actually quite keen on the idea of another lockdown. So when the second or third lockdown was coming, and I did hear a few people say things like, oh yeah, I've got some some Netflix series that I want to watch and you know, I can have eight weeks off work and watch all the all the Netflix backlog that I've that I've built up. And it's like, Jesus, you just you just don't understand, do you? Um I think yeah. I think I think it's I think it has demonstrated that a lot of people, maybe the majority of people even certainly something close to, to half, uh, uh, basically unreachable, I think. Um, which isn't a nice thing to, I mean, a nice thing to realize particularly, but it, I suppose it, cla- it clarifies the mind and maybe it, it um, uh, suggests then other solutions to, to our problems than simply relying on, you know, getting the majority of the population behind you. Yeah, I mean, they, they don't call it the, the populist delusion for nothing. Um, it's, yeah, I think this is a conclusion that a lot of people in kind of our, our wider circle are reaching. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not about them. Um, and sadly, cause you know, ideally you'd want to have everyone's, uh, vote, but yeah, unfortunately that's not how things work. And I feel like if the last two or three or five years haven't proven that to, to, to most people, then you haven't been paying attention. Like it's not. You know, nothing's been decided in an election except for, you know, culture war screeching, but nothing really of substance. The same people run the same stuff, you know, the NGOs, the headless, you know, faceless bureaucrats. Um, it's all churning away in the background, get, getting more and more um, complex and in, inscrutable with every iteration. Yeah, totally. No, I, to- I totally agree. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, uh, I mean, it's potentially a black pill, but also, I think, as I as I say, it's it's an opportunity to clarify our thinking about what actually needs to be done, what what is likely to be effective, and what isn't. And, exactly, uh, and a, a lot of the things that can be done start, you know, at the at the basis of of oneself and the people around you, and just making things work. I mean, I know you're a proponent of. Uh, regenerative agriculture of, um, you know, having maybe, you know, a few chickens of your own. There, there are things that you can do uh, in, in your own life that, um, you know, might not lead to the, I don't know, the death of Klaus Schwab or whatever, you know, big <laughs> regime enemies one, one might have. But uh, it's, it does um, lead to a lot of important changes in, in, yeah, in just your life, which is essentially what, what matters most. Yeah, I think yeah, I think so. I think it's um I think it's important to be humble. I think it's I mean, I think that's one of the benefits actually of of what Jordan Peterson has done and for all his faults, I think that he's he's drawn people's attention to the to the benefits of taking a humble stance towards the things that are wrong in your life, you know. Start small, uh, you know, take care of the small things and the big things will look after themselves as the uh, biblical proverb has it. So yeah, I think there's I think there's a lot to be there's there is something that you can do even if you can't alter the alter the um the larger scale political system in the way that you might like to with a you know with a click of your fingers or a or a, a tick in a ballot box uh there are things that you can do that will add up if lots of people do them as well into a, a you know a fundamental change and what that's one of the things that I talk about in the eggs benedict option is 
the way that people can return to local uh, agriculture. So I use local forms of agriculture. Uh, so I use the example of um, this uh, thing that's called Russian household gardening, which is which is quite an amazing system, really. It's it's an outgrowth of the of the peasant model of agriculture that sort of uh, has been present in agriculture in uh, in Russia since you know since the <laughs> since the first millennium AD, you know, since the the beginning of the of the Russian kingdoms, the Russian principalities. It's small scale uh, local food production. Uh, you might have a garden, uh, or you might have a plot of land in the countryside. So Russia is now predominantly an urban nation. Two thirds of people in Russia live in the cities, and yet millions and millions of Russians head out of the cities to little plots of land in the surrounding countryside to grow uh, vegetables, fruit and vegetables organically, and to um, uh, they keep animals, they keep chickens, and maybe pigs and things like that. And Russians actually produce on 3% of all of the total land under tillage in Russia or under under cultivation in Russia they produce over 50% of the food that they of the food that the country produces by value so ordinary people do that ordinary people produce something like i think it's 92% of all potatoes that are eaten in Russia uh significant quantities uh 87% i think of fruit and berries that people eat uh, significant quantities of milk and eggs, um, you know, and this is a this is a modern nation. This is a modern nation of 150 million people. There's no reason why we have to rely, why we have to rely totally on industrial agriculture to provide our needs. Um, you know, a, a system like that could work in the U.S. Has worked in the past. You know, there've been back to the land drives. There was a back to the land drive in World War II. Victory gardens. People started, millions and tens of millions of people started cultivating their own food to help in the war effort. It would obviously require political will. I think it would have to be a political movement as well. And that's something that I talk about in the book, about the links between populism and small-scale farming and all that kind of stuff. You know, We shouldn't forget that um, Thomas Jefferson's ideal for the US was as a nation of small farmers. Um, uh, and that doesn't necessarily have to mean people homesteading. That could just mean that actually people people start to produce a decent share of their own food themselves and break free of the corporate stranglehold i mean that would do that would do everyone that would do the country that would do the us the world of good to break the corporate stranglehold on agriculture because that's just uh, it's part and parcel with the corporate stranglehold on american life full stop yeah it's uh it's it's interesting because the the um partly this is what's happening in romania as well um, just a, a interesting side note there, because I've um, I used to go to wine school or enology. I kind of studied this uh, viticulture essentially, yeah. um, and uh, a, a big problem that we have here with with farmers is that they're getting in in the farm shops in the villages. Even you're getting access to these insanely powerful pesticides, uh, mm. herbicides, and and um, fertilizers. Um, and they tend to overuse them. And um, yeah, this course. even goes uh, towards like, um, I don't know, like for in, in wine production, there are uh, sulfites that you add to wine. Yeah. And they they protect the wine from oxidation. They protect it from, you know, going going bad. You know, you don't need like a perfectly sealed uh, stainless steel, you know, vat to produce your wine. You can 
produce in, in weirder conditions. And that's sadly makes some of the the produce that comes out of the the farmer's market essentially even more laden with these things because people don't know how to apply them. They really like the new technology. You know, the, the, mm. the weed killer works amazingly. The fertilizer makes everything pop. You know, Roundup is great. Um, and they can get all that now. And that's that's kind of the, the sad thing because you think, oh, I'm just going to go to a farmer's market. I'm going to get like my organic produce. But it's it's everywhere. And it's, it's really it's sad. And I would have been I would have been a bigger proponent of farmers markets here if I if I didn't, you know, do the the viticulture uh, course and all this type of stuff and saw exactly how uh, you know just just this one um, crop grapes is treated, mm. um, and yeah, it's 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 a big problem. Like there's there's layers and layers upon this, but it's yeah, I it's I don't know, it's a sad fact. Yeah, it's a, it's it's it, it is true that a lot of farmers actually you think farmers are very very sentimental about the land and about animals and stuff, and actually a lot of them really aren't. Um, Farming is tough. It's yeah. really tough. You're dependent on the weather. Whenever whenever there's some substance or magic potion that gives you an edge, especially if it's cheap and you know it protects your crop from X or Y, you know. Mm. possibility of disaster which many of these things do you know you'd you're definitely going to go to the shop and get some some magic dust and <laughs> spray it on your crops or whatever well in the in the soviet union famously then they uh for a while they came up with this idea of um basically firing radioactive material into the soil to make it more productive and they created these sort of special tractors that would go around firing i think it was cesium or something like that some r- horrible radioactive substance to make their crops grow, and of course, had all these terrible, t- terrible side effects, including poisoning land for many, many, you know, hundreds or maybe even thousands of years for the for future generations. But yes, I mean, it's interesting actually. Um, Russia, for all its faults, Russia is Russia is committed now to being the world's largest producer of organic food. That was actually a a commitment that has been made by the Russian government and um, is being encouraged uh, in stark contrast to the trajectory of the EU, which is, for a long time, the EU actually had some quite good uh, environmental regulations, but they're they're starting to fall by the wayside. There There was a landmark case in the European court to do with Italy, where um, I can't remember the exact details, but some farmers or some groups didn't want farmers to use um, a particular kind of genetic modified crop. And then the EU court said that, well, since this crop has been declared legal in the whole of the EU, we can't make, you can't make an exception in Italy. And so, yes, I mean, the situation in, in the EU is, is actually starting to move closer to, closer to America than it is Russia, which is a shame because actually the EU, you know, and, and Britain, even a, 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 um, you know, Britain outside the EU could actually be a bastion for, for the best kind of farming rather than the worst. But it looks like, it actually looks at the moment like Russia is going to be, if you want to look to any one particular nation for, you know, the the model for farming and the future of a real you know good farming then yeah it's it's probably russia yeah that's that's really interesting yeah for for sure for romania the eu has been a mixed blessing i mean i personally have big problems with it it's been useful in some ways i've talked about this on the podcast as well it's it's broken quite a quite a like um a game theory problem that we had with corruption because they kind of imposed external order and uh, oversight, and it really 
did help with reducing corruption, which really is a big problem. Like really, you, you couldn't do business with Romania 20, 30 years ago. It was almost impossible. Now it it's, it is possible. It's okay. People expect to not have to pay bribes when they go to a place. You know, there's a, you know, the, the burden of expectations have has moved on to the don't pay bribes uh, end, which is an amazing uh, improvement instead of the, for sure, I'm going to have to dish out some bribe and then I'll be, there's a whole awkward thing of where you put it, what it's going to be, who you're going to give it to. Now, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's different. I'm not saying there are no bribes, but it's not like you go to the dentist, you have to bribe him. You go to the post office, you have to bribe them. So it's really eased things. On the other hand, we have an, an eternal stranglehold of regulations, you know, one crazier than the other. And apparently also, um, you know, the, uh, the regulations that you highlighted. So that's, uh, that's a great one to add to the, to the naughty list. Um, I, I know we're coming up on time and I want to ask you the last question, the question of the show and everyone uh, gets this question. It's um, the subversive thinker question. Do you have anyone that you found influential? I mean, you, you mentioned Weston Price, but um, anyone who was an important influence for you and you think is underrated and people should read more of, um, you know, if you could point us in, in that direction. Uh, let me think. Who do I like? Uh, well, okay. Here's, here's somebody who's been a big influence on my recent work is an anthropologist called James C. Scott. And uh, seeing like a state, seeing like a state. But yes, he uh, that's a great book. Um, he wrote books. His early books were about sort of um, silent forms of resistance. The way that that peasants can resist exactions by their lords by doing things like dragging their feet and, and sabotage and all that kind of stuff. But he wrote a book a few years ago called Against the Grain. And that was a very, very big influence on the way that I came to frame uh, the ex-Benedict option. So Against, Against the Grain is an historical account of the agricultural revolution. And contrary to, to the to the happy, clappy sort of story of, of the agricultural revolution, which is that the transition to farming was a wonderful boon for mankind and you know, it made life so much easier and, and, uh, and uh, regular and, and you could guarantee food production and it led to civilization and all this kind of stuff, parts of which are true, of course. Um, Scott tells a very different story based on uh, up-to-date archaeology and, and um, sorts of other epidemiology or sorts of other stuff about the real burden, the real burden of the transition to agriculture and the fact that actually it benefited a very, very narrow elite. But the majority of people who were subjected to it, and they were subjected to it, they were forced to become farmers for the most part, uh, really, really lost out. And that for me, I think, was a very, very, allowed me to make a very, very provocative comparison with what might happen with the Great Reset if we're all forced into eating plant-based diets, which is what that is the Great Reset model for the future of food, of course. And that's the, I think that is actually the, the basis or the, un, the real underpinning of the Great Reset. So, you know, the, the, the Neolithic revolution was a social transformation predicated on a transformation in the way food was produced and consumed. And the Great Reset is exactly the same more or less, but, but, you know, with very similar aspects and also some, uh, uh, some new sort of wild cards thrown in there. Um, so yes, I would, I would recommend reading James Scott, but especially against the grain, it's a provocative, it's readable. He's, he's one of these interesting academics who is 
a wide ranging he's a wide ranging non specialist but he's he's so well read and he's articulate and provocative and and uh you know it's it's not nothing about it is dry it's not a dry book at all it's an it's an interesting book and he talks about you know why life was better as a why life was better as a barbarian he says there was this thing called the golden age of barbarians for sort of a, you know a couple of thousand years maybe up until about the sort of 1600s where actually if you were a barbarian you were likely to be happier healthier uh, and freer than somebody living a peasant living under a you know in a grain state so uh, yeah that's a that's a fantastic book that's one that i would absolutely that would i would heartily heartily recommend yeah that's that sounds like an excellent recommendation thank you so much um this has been lovely i'm i'm so glad we got to do this um, and I want to point people again towards your books. I mean, the, the latest one is uh, The Eggs Benedict Option, but you have cookbooks, you have Man's World magazine, you have a extended opus, which includes documentaries aired internationally uh, and, and many, many more uh, bits of media, other podcasts as well. Um, I'll link the documentary in the show notes and, and your latest book as well. Is there Thank any you. other thing that people should be uh, paying attention to in the raw egg sphere? Uh, I've got uh, an op-ed coming out in the Epoch Times on Friday, which is pretty big news, I think. Um, and uh, you're probably going to see me writing for some more mainstream conservative outlets. I write for American Mind already. I've written four pieces for them, and I'll continue to write for them, hopefully, but also for some other people. So so stay tuned. There's there's big news coming up. Uh, keep, uh, keep your eyes and ears on my Twitter, and uh, you'll find out what those things are. Excellent. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible. So thank you. <laughs>